Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. The Eye Critical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Monday, September 18th, 2006. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. On our podcast today, we will be speaking with Magid A. Tanyos, M.D., about an article he published in the July issue of Critical Care Medicine. The title of this article is A Randomized Controlled Trial of the Role of Weaning, Predictors in Clinical Decision-Making. Dr. Tanyos is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles, and director of the intensive care unit at St. Mary's Medical Center in Long Beach, California. Dr. Tanyos, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, the way I like to do these normally is just to try and summarize and paraphrase a little bit of the background, but then give you an opportunity to help uh, explain some of the issues. So as far as uh, I understood looking at this particular article, uh, the major uh, succinct areas where you can determine the whole course of it is in Figure 1, where you took approximately uh, 150 patients in each group, and the goal of this study was to determine if utilizing a weaning parameter or weaning predictor, in this case the rapid shallow breathing index, would benefit or not in terms of getting patients off of the ventilator sooner. And um, if you'd like to spend a couple of minutes going over figure one and explaining perhaps a little bit of the background for this study and how the particular protocol of this study was designed, that might be good. Sure. Uh, yeah, thank you for me for this interview. I want to begin by that. And uh, the reason for uh, our study was to test whether including a weaning parameter in a weaning protocol would improve the process and help with predicting which patients will do better. So uh, to accomplish that, we randomized uh, patients to two groups. Uh, one group they're going to go through the weaning process, uh, and the weaning process would include an assessment of readiness that would include a weaning parameter. Uh, and for this, we chose the uh, rapid shallow breathing index for that, the F over VT. The other group will go to a similar weaning process, exactly the same, but the weaning parameter is collected and the therapist uh, know the number, but they would not make any decisions based on the number, meaning if the rapid shallow breathing index is high, more than 105, they will continue to proceed with the, with the spontaneous breathing trial. If it's, if it's lower, it's not going to affect either way, but if it's higher, the patient will continue to have the uh, weaning trial. So if you look at the figure one 
it has group A and group B, and the possibility that either the patient passed or failed the weaning assessment, and the group B would kind of have the weaning parameter in it, but the group A would not going to have that. Subsequently, they'll move ahead to have a spontaneous breathing trial, and from this point on, if the spontaneous breathing trial is successful, the patient got extubated. And so just to, just to um, rephrase sort of the background going into this, the concept, the background is that there are multiple parameters, weaning parameters, weaning predictors that have been proposed and put forward that might help allow the uh, critical care clinician determine if a patient should either undergo their spontaneous breathing trial or not. Uh, or if they do undergo their spontaneous breathing trial to help them determine whether or not the patient should actually be extubated. Maybe you could talk about some of the historical background coming into this. Exactly. The, the, the practice is usually is to assess whether the patient is ready for weaning. And the assessment tools include many things. Uh, one of them is whether the patient is, uh, is uh, recovering from the reason for respiratory failure, and then hemodynamic stability, oxygenation is appropriate, secretion is fine. But the last one is usually used is a weaning parameter. Uh, and clinicians usually use the weaning parameter, and if the patient fails the weaning parameter, that would not allow him to proceed to a spontaneous breathing trial. So um, the, the idea is whether weaning parameters used in that context help or not. That was one of the questions I was going to ask you is, um, uh, from some of the important uh, studies previously published in the literature, exactly as you just said, something like the rapid shallow breathing index would be integrated into, into some of the screening criteria that you mentioned here in your legend for figure one, exactly, just to reemphasize it because it is such an important point that you mentioned the patients had to have a PF ratio greater than 150 or saturating well, that their PEEP levels were low, that they, had, that they were hemodynamically stable with a mean arterial pressure greater than equal to 60, that they were awake and easily arousable and had adequate coughing during suctioning and did not require significant suctioning. But as you pointed out, in many studies, one of the other criteria is some sort of a weaning parameter, and yet the purpose of this study is to determine prospectively what is the value added of putting that in as part of your screening uh, parameters, correct? Correct, correct, absolutely. Um, and the, what I usually like to do at this point is, before we go into uh, tremendous detail, is really to give you an opportunity to talk about some of your, uh, I would say, surprising and very interesting results from a study like this, given how much time is devoted uh, to measuring things like rapid shallow breathing index and other screening parameters. So maybe if you could go to table two and talk about some of your important results. Sure. Um, so actually, uh, the interesting is we initially... Uh, saw that it may not uh, help adding a weaning parameter and may or may not help adding a weaning parameter. But uh, we were surprised to notice that in early on in the study, it was clear that the patients that are not on the uh, arm that included F over VT had a shorter weaning time. So if you look at table one, we have uh, 151 patients that underwent the uh, weaning with the F over VT uh, measured but not included in the clinical decision, uh, as opposed to 153 that F over VT was included in clinical decision. The weaning time uh, 
for the patient that had F over VT not included winning decision was two days. That's a median as compared to three, and that was statistically significant. And if you look at uh, the uh, complication, because one would say maybe we extubated those patients earlier, but they get reintubated or they did not do as well. As a matter of fact, uh, the uh, data showed that there was no complication uh, to undergoing this kind of approach in weaning assessment. So the patient did not have any increased risk for reintubation, mortality, tracheostomy, or any other complication. And uh, with maintaining a better weaning time. And as uh, importantly here, just quoting your results section, uh, the results of modeling demonstrated that adding a weeding predictor, i.e., the rapid shallow breathing index, to a daily screen was an independent was independently associated with increased weaning time with an adjusted relative risk of 1.2. Yeah, that's correct. If you look at the figures too, uh, you're going to see that that was an independent predictor of prolonged uh, uh, prolonged weaning. As, and when we, when we try to show in Figure Two, two is this, uh, it is it is as strong as a predictor as the other disease that we know that uh, they're prolonged or they pose a worse mortality or a worse outcome in the ICU, like ARDS or pneumonia. Uh, so uh, adding a weaning predictor predictor prolong that process. So the idea is maybe. We just see that number and decide not to offer the patient a weaning trial when they're going to do okay. I just want to make one other point for the listeners. This was not a single center study. This was three different medical centers, correct, if you wanted exactly. to share that? And it's a randomized uh, control study when the clinician was not aware of which arm his patient was allocated. And so just to uh, let you take a few minutes, here are some of my thoughts just to help uh, bring up some discussion points. Clearly, as a critical care clinician, it would be wonderful if, you know, if a patient is awake and alert and hemodynamically stable and oxygenating well, and yet we can look at some number and say you have an 80% likelihood of being able to uh, extubate your patient. So it certainly is commendable that these types of parameters have been developed over the years. But the point, or one of the points of this study is exactly what you were just describing before. You may be, a patient may be able to be extubated before they've completely normalized their rapid shallow breathing index, or if you'd like to take a few minutes and share your thoughts that uh, you must have developed over the course of, de- of uh, creating this study. Yeah, uh, my thought as well as the uh, other co-authors with me are uh, the, the, uh, the uh, spontaneous breathing trial is a rather safe uh, test to undergo. Uh, multiple studies shown that their patients uh, did okay with no problems when they were monitored throughout a spontaneous breathing trial, which is whichever, whichever way or the method the, the ICU or the clinician would try to use, whether a T-bar trial or a pressure support trial, it is pretty, it's pretty safe. And if the patient undergoes that for uh, two hours, or even if the patient fails that weaning trial, there is no significant problems with that. There was concern uh, previously about uh, respiratory muscle fatigue or weakness or respiratory muscle uh, injury, but all of that has not uh, panned out to be significant. 
So, so the thought is, why should we hold the patient from getting a spontaneous breathing trial that is safe? And if the patient passes the two hours of spontaneous breathing trial, we're just going to go ahead and extubate the patient. Uh, so maybe using a weaning predictor in that process will just hold us from testing whether or not the patient will do okay or not. You know, along those lines, since from the results of this paper that the rapid shallow breathing index may not be of tremendous benefit to the practicing clinical critical care clinician, um, I thought we might spend a couple of minutes going over Appendix A in terms of your criteria for failing a spontaneous breathing trial, and I, you can never go over stuff uh, like this too often. And uh, I don't know if I read it in your paper or not, but was it was it looked at in terms of what ways people failed, or would you like to spend a few minutes talking about some of the different ways in which people can fail their spontaneous breathing trials? Can you repeat the question again? What what ways, you say? Well, you have here in Appendix A your criteria. You have grade one criteria, a patient becoming hypoxic, a patient becoming hypercapnic, uh, becoming tachypnic, or becoming hemodynamically unstable. But you had very specific criteria for the study in terms of either one grade one criteria or multiple from other criteria. Maybe if you could talk about that for a couple of minutes. This is is a criteria that we adopted from from, uh, prior, uh, prior studies. And uh, if the patient developed any of those criteria, we decided that the spontaneous breathing trial uh, is is uh, failed. But we had we had the criteria grade one and grade two and grade three because uh, some of them are not as strong as others, and some of them are, may not be very clear to the clinician. But uh, this is an excellent question you ask, and whether or not the type of failure. Uh, made any difference. We are actually looking into that right now and trying to see if the type of failure or if the patient failed because of one or other criteria would make any difference or would clue the clinician to something different to approach. But uh, in this study, we did not look at that. And again, just for the listeners, I'm, I'm going to read through uh, the criteria for your trial in case they're trying to uh, replicate some of these important results. So just uh, quoting from uh, your study here, for the spontaneous breathing trial to be considered failed, any one grade one criteria, any two grade two criteria, or one grade two criteria with both grade three criteria had to be met. And again, just for the listeners, I think this is very important to go over. So grade one, as I mentioned before, worsening oxygenation, becoming more hypercapnic, becoming tachypnic, or becoming uh, somewhat hypotensive. Grade two criteria, becoming uh, tachycardic, a even more profound uh, increase in systolic blood pressure, signs or symptoms of increasing work of breathing, and uh, tachypnea exceeding 35 breaths per minute. And then finally, grade three criteria was evidence of, of diaphoresis and agitation. So again, uh, and again, as you mentioned, according to the American College of Chess Physician guidelines, there are sort of subjective and objective criteria as part of failing a spontaneous breathing trial. Did you have any trouble? Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about the recruiting uh, process? Was this uh, very challenging, or, or were there, you know, there seems to be still some degree of clinical equipoise in this particular clinical uh, arena? Yeah, you bet, you bet. Yeah, recruitment was, was uh, uh, needed lots of effort to recruit the patient early on. We tried to recruit the patient as soon as they get uh, intubated, and uh, we just talked to the families about it. It was it was uh, difficult to uh, to recruit, but it's like any other randomized control trial in the intensive care unit. This part is challenging. The other difficulty we had is 
do with implementing the protocol and all of the uh, teachings and meetings and uh, uh, discussing the protocol with our nurses, respiratory therapists. They did an excellent job uh, helping us with this protocol. Uh, and uh, we, we had a decent uh, uh, recruitment uh, and, uh, and a capture of the patients that were in the ICU on the ventilator at that time for duration, uh, us and other two centers included in that. I, I thought we could conclude by letting you talk a little bit about, A, if there is any role in your personal opinion for the Rapid Shallow Breathing Index or where you think the future will lie in terms of research on other clinical weaning parameters. Obviously, the result from this particular manuscript, um, it, it doesn't look good for the Rapid Shallow Breathing Index, but if you could share some of your expertise, that would be wonderful. I, I believe there would still be a role for the Rapid Shallow Breathing Index in the sense that is a a reasonable way to communicate among physicians uh, at least uh, how the patient is doing from a respiratory standpoint. If somebody was telling me that the uh, rapid shallow breathing index is very high, it will may translate into something different in my mind uh, rather than a shallow, uh, than it's uh, normal and the patient is failing to the uh, spontaneous breathing trial. The other areas that I think it's been currently looked at is uh, maybe there are different thresholds for different patients uh, with regards to the predictive value of the rapid shallow breathing index. We're using 105 now, but maybe we can fine-tune it a little bit differently. Uh, with regards to the other weaning parameters, as we know, we chose the F over VT because it's most accurate and easy to be done at the bedside. Uh, there are some other parameters, including the P100, P100 in relation to the inspiratory pressures. Uh, and uh, right now they are trying to incorporate those parameters in the newer uh, ventilator modes. So maybe we're going to have them available at the bedside uh, sooner to assess. Uh, and that yet needs to be looked at whether incorporating other weaning predictor that has maybe a stronger positive predictive value or stronger negative predictive value would help. Uh, in uh, in the weaning process. Right now, it's very complex to have one of those uh, weaning predictors at the bedside, almost only in a research setting. But uh, maybe with time, uh, they're going to be available at the bedside. We've been speaking today with Dr. Magid A. Tanyos, MD, regarding his article published in the July issue of Critical Care Medicine entitled, A Randomized Controlled Trial of the Role of Weaning Predictors in Clinical Decision-Making. This manuscript answered the question, is there value in adding the rapid shallow breathing index to your screening parameters for determining if your patient should undergo a daily spontaneous breathing trial? And at least according to this manuscript, the answer appears to be uh, there is not significant value by adding in the rapid shallow breathing index. And I'd like to thank you again, Dr. Tanyos, for joining us today. Thank you. This concludes our podcast for Monday, September 18th, 2006. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 
to share your thoughts. Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. Sepsis, glycemic control, and antithrombotics in critical care is the inaugural conference of the Society's new series, Clinical Focus, and will be held in San Diego, California, USA on November 3rd and 4th, 2006. Expert intensive care providers from multiple professions and specialties will provide an in-depth overview of infection control and sepsis-related therapies, glycemic control, and the use of antithrombotics to prompt high-level discussions and debates. Be sure to participate in the live webcast, Glycemic Control in the Critically Ill and Injured Patient, Progress and Problems, to be held prior to the conference on November 2, 2006. Register for this innovative conference today by speaking with an SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or by visiting www.sccm.org.